0: Will you take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. We're going to begin this morning a new series of studies based on the Gospel of John and uh, make our way through this uh, book in the months that lie ahead. I would encourage you to study it on your own. The growth groups will be... uh, we'll be using this uh, this gospel as the basis of their studies and i would encourage you again if you're not in a in a growth group to uh, find one that's nearby and and uh, and get involved and and start studying for your own this book so that when you come on sunday morning you'll already have some idea of of the content of uh, of this gospel and the gospel of john was written by The disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the author's designation for himself. The book is actually anonymous. John never mentions that he himself is the author. But uh, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, we mustn't think from that uh, way of describing himself that he thought he was someone special. That Jesus loved him more than he loved anyone else. I, I think John was always amazed that Jesus loved him. He, he couldn't understand how Jesus could love the likes of him. And that's why he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I, I think we can all understand. I, I can, as the, as the hymn writer put it. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, O God, should die for me? That, that sort of love is astonishing. And I think that's why John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, when John wrote this book, he was, a, he was elderly. He was probably in his, in his 80s, or perhaps even 90 years of age. It's one of the last books in the New Testament to be written. Written after the other Gospels, written after the other, other epistles. And uh, John, I think like, like most elderly men that have lived very interesting lives... He used to reminisce about his, uh, his times with the Lord. They were very real to him. And though the events, uh, the time of writing is some 50 to 60 years after the events described in the book, the memories were very sharp in John's mind. One of, one of the hallmarks of the book is the fact that it uses so many present tenses, as though the author is right there on the scene. He was an eyewitness, but his memories are so vivid It's as though he's there. In one uh, passage, for example, in in the fifth chapter of of John, John describes a pool, the pool of of Bethesda, which is, he says, in Jerusalem. And if John wrote about 90, 85 to 90 A.D., that that pool was no longer there because in 70 A.D., Titus and uh, his Roman legions destroyed the city and destroyed the pool. But in John's mind, it's still there. There is a pool, he says, the pool of Bethesda. And when he tells the story of Mary breaking the alabaster box and pouring uh, perfume on Jesus' feet, he remembers the smell of the perfume as it, as it pervaded the room. And I'm sure John must have reminisced over the years as his disciples sat at his feet. And uh, one day, uh, here I'm speculating wildly, perhaps one day he said, Well, I could write a book about Jesus. As a matter of fact, I could write a hundred books. In fact, the libraries of the world couldn't contain the books about Jesus if I were to tell everything in detail that I that I heard and and I saw. And perhaps one of his disciples said, John, why don't you write a book? And he did. Under the prompting, certainly, of the Holy Spirit, he sat down and he wrote this, not really biography, because it's it's too selective to be a biography, but his memories of Jesus and specifically the things that he did and the things that he said. Now, scholars debate his purpose for writing the book. Some say, well, there were some heresies abroad. There was a man named Serentis who who was teaching heresy in, in the church, and others think he, that he wrote to combat synagogue Judaism, or he wrote to con, combat uh, Gnosticism, a kind of uh, first stage of Gnosticism, a kind of Greek philosophy that was making its way into the church denying the reality of the incarnation and some say that's why he wrote he had these theological reasons he was combating heresy but i, I for myself i like to take the simplest approach and simply uh, uh, explain john's purpose in in terms of his own explanation john says these are written this is in chapter 20 verse 31 these are written that you might believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that believing you might have life in his name. I think the purpose for writing the book is to is to help us to believe in Jesus and center our attention upon him and, and worship him. And the effect of that, as John says, will be to have life, to begin to really live, to experience life as God intended us to live it. So I, I'm going to take John's purpose. He wrote it to make believers out of us, to teach us how to believe. Now, the book is very easy to... Uh, the diagram, the structure is, is, is very clear. There is a prologue, the first 18 verses of the book, which we'll look at this morning. There's an epilogue at the end of the book in chapter 21. In between, from verse 19 of chapter 1 on through chapter 12, is a book of signs, descriptions of miracles, seven of them specifically, that Jesus did that, that point to his, his nature. They're signs in that they tell us something we wouldn't already know. Uh, if, if you ever go to uh, San Jacinto, you'll see the, uh, see the monument there erected to uh, Sam Houston's victory over, uh, over uh, uh, Santa Ana. And at the bottom of the monument, it says, This monument is 45 feet taller than the Washington Monument. That's typical of Texas uh, signs. Now, y- you wouldn't know that if that sign weren't there. That's what a sign does. It tells you something you wouldn't already know. John says, this is a book of signs, miracles. It tells you something about Jesus that, would, that, that you probably wouldn't know if, if you didn't have this way of indicating his unique key character. Seven of these signs from chapters 1 through chapter 12. Chapters 13 through 17 are a a, a sort of look into the inner circle where Jesus talks to his disciples in the upper room. And then there follows in chapters 19 and 20 and 21 the story of his passion and and his resurrection. Very easy book to understand structurally. Now let's, uh, let's look at the prologue together. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Jesus is described here as the Word. It's very clear as we move on into the prologue that Jesus is given this title. He's the Word. Because down in verse 14, we're told that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. In fact, you can connect verses 1 and 2 and verses 14, and follow the argument of the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's, that's the gospel of, of John in a nutshell. That's a precis, a kind of summary of the entire book. So Jesus is the Word. Now, I, I wish Brian Fisher were up here to explain this uh, concept to you. Brian is a, is a philosophy major from Stanford. I majored in P.E., <laughs> and uh, every time I come to explaining one of these concepts, I feel like I just fell off of the uh, turnip wagon, but uh, I'll try. And uh, John, uh, uh, Brian can correct, uh, correct my philosophy here next time he gets up to preach as I understand this this term, it came originally from Greek philosophy. Uh, the, the Greeks used the word word for intelligence or mind. They didn't really believe in a personal God. The philosophers didn't, not in the sense that the Jews did or, or that we do. But they believed, was, I always think of uh, the story of uh, of, uh, uh The Wizard of Oz, the Greeks had a concept of God somewhat like the Wizard of Oz, sort of mind or intelligence, except immaterial, in the world of the spirit, formulating ideas. That's where everything was real. Nothing is real here. What we see and and what happens around us are simply reflections of the world of ideas, which are in the spirit world. And the Greeks referred to that mind or intelligence as the word, because a word is an intelligent formulation of ideas. So, what a word is. You express ideas through words. Now, I can make up a nonsense word, which technically is a word. It's a combination of letters, but it isn't really a word. I can make up a word like KXPD or something like that. If that's not a word. It might be a call letter for a radio station, but it's not a word, you see, because it doesn't say anything intelligent. A word, to be a word, has to be the expression of some intelligent mind, some reason. Now, the Greeks said... That's what runs the universe. That's what's minding the store. Back there somewhere is the word, which is an intelligent, rational expression of of ideas. Now, philosophy, even very uh, abstract philosophy, has a way of trickling down to the common people. The terminology, the ideas eventually get to to us. And uh, that word, word came down to the Jews, and they began to use it as the word for God. There's no question about that. Uh, when I was at the University of California, we were reading what, what are called Targumim. They're Aramaic paraphrases of the Old Testament. And one of the Targumim that we're, we were reading was one from, of, of the book of Jonah. Now, you know, the Jews did not use, they very seldom spoke aloud the word of God. They used other expressions because they did not want to profane the name of God. And guess what was the word they used for God in this Targum of Jonah? The word, word, mimrah in Aramaic, word. And everywhere you would expect to find Yahweh or God in the Hebrew text was the word said to Jonah, do this and that. I nearly fell out of my chair when I read that. Because I realized that any Jew picking up the Gospel of John and reading in the beginning was the word would know exactly what he was talking about, even if they weren't familiar with Greek terminology. In the beginning was the Word, the pure expression of God. That's what a Word is. I, I sometimes uh, sit in my chair in, in my corner, and, and uh, Ben wool and Carolyn will say, what are you thinking about? And usually my thoughts are not very profound, but I have to tell her, because she can't guess by watching me. As well as she knows me. She doesn't know what I'm thinking about unless I give her a word. I don't use body language. I don't whistle. I don't do it in sign language. I I tell her with a word. Now, that's what Jesus was. He was God's word. He was God's expression of what he was. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. That's why the, the author of Hebrews says, God, who spoke in various ways through the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us in a son. He's God's last word to us. If you want to see what God is like, look at Jesus. Listen to him. That's how you come to know God. Now, John tells us some things about the Word. We're told, first of all, that he was in the beginning. Now, that's not a time reference, that's an idiom. It means eternity. He was eternal. He was, as, as G.K. Chesterton put it, the everlasting man. Christmas was not the beginning of Jesus. He existed before he was born. He eternally existed. There was a time when he was uh, uh, engaged in debate with the Pharisees. And uh, he, he said, uh, Abraham, rejoice to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Pharisees said, you're not even 50 years old. What do you mean Abraham saw you? Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. And Jesus said as calmly as as though you and I would comment on the weather before before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say I was. He didn't mean he pre-existed Abraham. He meant he was the eternal one. Before Abraham was, I am. And uh, so we won't miss his point. John tells us the Jews picked up stones to stone him. They knew exactly what he was saying. That was blasphemy. He was claiming to be God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. That's the second thing that's said of the Word. It speaks of intimate relationship, association, fellowship. He was in heaven as he spoke so frequently of himself, coming down from heaven. He knew the Father. He was with the Father. He understood the Father's heart. Later, John will tell us that he was in the bosom of the Father. He not only knew what the Father did, he not only saw the Father's deeds, he saw the Father's heart. He understood the Father. That's why he could be such a perfect expression of the heart and mind of the Father, because he was with him in heaven. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And here comes the the, 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 the the clincher. The Word was God. The Word was God. Now, occasionally you have people show up on your, your front door, knock, 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 and th- they will tell you that this noun, God, this proper noun, does not have an article in front of it. And it ought to be translated... In the beginning was a God. And so God, uh, Jesus, was had deity. I mean, he was divine, but he was not the God. And so we need to change our translations. Rascals, they're rascals. They ought to know better than that. Any first-year Greek student knows that there's a rule that governs the way that verse is all put together. I'm not going to bore you with the details. But whenever you have a predicate nominative, the subject has an article. The object has an article. It's understood. You don't have to have the article there. It's redundant. It would even be awkward Greek. And so when John says the word was God, he meant just that. Not that he was merely divine, but that he was the God of the universe himself, who was in the beginning, the eternal one, who was with God and was God I can't explain that. No one can explain that. How can two things be one and one thing be two? That's just what John says. It was a mystery to him. It was a mystery to everyone that saw him. But they came to realize that this man who walked on the earth, who looked like everyone else, was, in fact, God. And who claimed to be God. That's the amazing thing. That's why you cannot say that Jesus is merely a good teacher. That's nonsense. That's nonsense. As C.S. Lewis put it, if Jesus is not who he claimed to be and not who the apostles claimed to be, he cannot merely be a good teacher. He either has to be demented on the level of a man who thinks he's a fried egg, or he has to be a demon from hell, or he's God himself. But he said, let's not have any of this nonsense uh, nonsense of talking about Jesus as a merely good teacher. The facts will not admit it. He can't be merely a good teacher. He claimed too much. The apostles claimed too much for him. And if the apostles are mistaken, it's a solitary mistake. No other religion has made that mistake. Muslims do not believe that Muhammad was God or ever claimed to be God. Buddhists do not believe that Buddha was Brahma or ever claimed to be. They do not believe, or Zoroastrians do not believe that Zoroaster was Ahura Mazda or ever claimed to be. If Christians are mistaken... It is a solitary mistake. Nobody else has made that mistake. But you see, we're not mistaken. That's the mystery. Jesus was God. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. And John goes on to talk about his... His creative activity, verse three, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. That sounds uh, redundant, but what John is saying is that he's the creator of, of the original creation, he formed matter, and he's the one who who keeps things in order today. Everything that is in existence today is here because of because of his power. He's the creator. You know, one of the great questions in science, the question that has never been answered by any theory, by any scientific theory, is how matter came to be. How did it all get here originally? Now, the way most scientists go about explaining it is to posit long periods of time. The assumption seems to be that if you have enough time, anything can happen, even creation of something out of nothing. You go back eons, eons, <laughs> billions of years, and if you have enough time built into the system, anything could happen. But they never face the fact that no matter how far you go back into time, you still got to ask the question, how did it come into being? How did matter get here? If you have a big bang, how did this condensed ball that banged come here, uh, come to be? See, that's, that's a question he cannot answer. How did matter get to be here in the first place? How did he get here? John says, Jesus made it. He created matter, and he's the one who holds it all together. Some of our kids were just down in uh, California this last week, and they saw this great uh, linear accelerator at Stanford University, and, and I don't understand that thing, but they make some particle go round, 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 round. And they shoot it down this gun barrel and it hits an atom and, and it blows it all to pieces so they they can analyze the component parts of of an atom. And if you've ever seen that thing, here's a mile-long gun barrel, that's what it amounts to, with all these power lines leading into it, enormous amounts of power necessary to crack one atom. And scientists today can't tell you what holds that thing together and why you have to have that, you have to... Mass that energy in order to blow that thing apart. What holds it together? Jesus does. He created matter and He holds it all together. Everything He says that has come into being, He brought it into being. In Him was life. That's another mystery to scientists. They could tell you what elements are in your body. They can b- bring all those elements together, and they—I don't know. I suppose they could even make a little man out of all those elements. But they can't give it life. And those of us that have stood by the side of a grave or a casket and looked at a loved one, and we've looked at them, and all the components are there, but life is gone. Where did where where is what is life? Where'd it come from? It came from Jesus. He created matter. He holds it together. And he's the author of life itself. And furthermore, that life was the light of men. That's another question that philosophers struggle with: what is truth? Pilate's cynical question of Jesus: what is truth? How do we know what's true? How do we know what's reliable? What, what can we count on? Where's a basis for building a, a, a healthy? wholesome family. What, what, what is man here for? What is our purpose in life? Why did we come into being? What is it that gives meaning and substance to our lives? What is truth? Jesus. He's the author of truth. If you want to know what's true, then listen to him. In him was life. It's one of the key themes of the book of John. Thirty-five times in the book it talks about the life that Jesus is and came to bring. In him was life and the life was the light of men. He has insights into life that no one ever had because he made man. That's why this book uh, has been described by some as the manual that goes with man. He made us and then he wrote the book about man that explains what works and what doesn't work. He's the light of the world. But as John puts it, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, did not grasp it. That's the story of human history. God was, was giving men light through the prophets and others, but they didn't grasp it. Couldn't understand it. It was obscured in, in the darkness. And so in verse 6, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. John, John the Apostle will have a, a, a lot to say about John the Baptist. In fact, some scholars believe that John's whole book was written in order to, to put a stop to the worship of John the Baptist. As, as late as Paul's day, 60s of the, of the first uh, century, some people up in Ephesus were still worshiping John. And even today in Iraq, they tell me there's a little cult very hostile to Christianity that worships John the Baptist and there may have been this, there may be some truth in this that perhaps people were beginning to think that John himself was the messiah and they were worshiping him and there are some disclaimers through the book that we'll see John John keeps saying John the Baptist is not the one he's not the light as he'll say later but but he came to bear witness of the light there came a man he wasn't god he was a man sent from god he came with 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 divine sanction he was a prophet whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. Not in him, but through him. He was simply a witness to the truth. He was not the light, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. You remember John. He he came unexpectedly. He appeared along the Jordan River. He dressed uh, uh, in a sort of counterculture way. I think that was his way of making a, making a point. He addressed himself to the affluent people of Jerusalem who had no time for God. And he, he ministered out in the desert, which was symbolic of the spiritual condition of, of Israel. And he called them to repentance. Repent, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Both Isaiah and Malachi, the prophets, had predicted that he would, he would come. And we're going to talk more about him as we look through the Gospel of John. But he was there simply to bear witness to the light, to, to dispel some of the darkness so people could G- see Jesus when he came. There was, John says in verse 9, the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. John was not the light, but he was the witness to the true light. The word true here means, means original, not true in contrast to false But the original light, light itself, the prototypical light, true truth. He came to to bear witness to that light, but he was not that light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world. The Word was in the world. And the world was made through him. And the world did not recognize him. World is another one of those words that John uses over and over, almost a hundred times in the book. And, and by world, he doesn't mean the world of created things, but people, the world of, of society, ordered society. Jesus was in the world. This is the first mention in the, pro, in the prologue of the incarnation. The light was with the Father. And God had, show, had shed light on men's problems over the years, but they didn't fully understand it. And so the light came into the world so people could see it. That's what John is saying. He was in the world, the world that he made, the world of people. But the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own home, literally. And his own people did not receive him. It's another one of the themes that we'll pick up in in the book as we read. Some people believed, others did not. The word belief occurs many, many times in in the book. And and there's a sharp contrast between those who believed what Jesus did and those who did not. He came to his own hometown. His own people didn't receive him. But the Samaritans did and the Greeks did, John says. And later he'll say, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the Son of God. That's the option that's forced on us as we read this book. That's why it's such a powerful evangelistic tract. That's why I always just give this book to to non-Christians to read and suggest that they read it with an open heart because it it forces you to the opinion that Jesus was, was God himself. Come to earth to manifest the character of God to us. Now, do we believe that or not? Those are the only two options. You can't be neutral as you read this book. He came to his own town. And those who were his own people did not receive him, but as many as received him. To them he gave, it's a gift, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the blo- not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's another theme in the book, that of a new birth. Not a natural birth. Not anything you can accomplish by yourself, but a new birth. A new creation. You meet Jesus Christ and you walk away a new person when you believe on him. That's what John is saying. And then in verse 14, he makes it very clear that the word came into the world and he tells us how he did it. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Now John gets personal. He starts talking about his own perceptions of Jesus. He begins to reminisce about what he saw and what he heard from Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, the unique one from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John used a word that any Jew reading this this passage would immediately understand. The Word became flesh. That's a statement of the Incarnation. The Incarnation is the central fact of Christianity. That God became a man. He was enfleshed. The Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, literally. And any Jew would remember that little tent that, that God commanded Moses to, lead, to, to build when, when they were out in, in the desert, out in the Sinai Desert. In Exodus 25, God said to, to Moses, build me a little tent, make me a little tent, so I can dwell among them, among Israel. And in a, in a symbolic way, God lived in that little tent. They knew God wasn't localized in that tent. They knew better than that. They knew that heaven couldn't contain God. But in symbol, he dwelt among his people. Through the Old Testament, you have this idea that God says, I will be your your God. You will be my people. And I will dwell in the midst of you. And he lived in this little little tent. Just a little tent. And that's that's what Jesus did. He took upon himself flesh. That was the tent. And he lived among us. He didn't shimmer and shine and float six inches off the ground. He looked just like you and me. Isaiah says... Who has believed our report? Who, who believed what was reported to us? For he grew up before him, that is, before before God, as a tender plant and like a root out of the dry ground. Who would have expected it? There was no stately form or majesty, he says, that we should desire him. And literally, the Hebrew says, and we looked, and there was no look, that is, there was nothing about him that would attract us. He was God in disguise. No one would have known it. That God had come to live in a pup tent. You know what I envision? This is a, I, I'm, I, just, I just have to make up things in my mind, and I just want to share an idea that I have. Imagine yourself uh, camped up at uh, Ponderosa Campground, and you've been there for several days, and things are just not going well. People are letting their dogs loose, they're running all over the place, they're playing their stereos at night, you can't sleep. Family next uh, next in the next campsite are arguing all the time, yelling at the kids. Fathers cuffing the children around. People are stealing things. Say hey, it is awful. And uh, there's a there's an empty campsite right next to you, and and a young man pulls pulls into that campsite in an old beat up Volkswagen. And he's about thirty years of age. He has on Levi's and a flannel shirt. And he gets out of his little blue pop-up mountain tent and he puts it up and he starts arranging his gear. And, and then he picks up some of his wood and and he, he takes it to one of the neighboring campsites and he shares it with them. And he helps them to split some wood and then he helps a fellow fix his, his trailer. And, and he finds a dog that's lost and it brings him back and and. and and then you look over at his campsite and you notice he's sitting on the table and the little kids in the campground are gathered around him sitting on the ground underneath the table and sitting on his lap and he's talking to them and, and people began to gather around and listen to him and they're struck by the fact that this young man has uncanny insight into life. He has perceptions that no one has ever heard before. He understands life. And people began to gather around. And listen to him. And not only does he have truth, but he's so gracious. He's so kind. He's so thoughtful. He's so sensitive. He's full of grace and truth. And uh, you could elaborate on the story a bit bit later. There's, you notice, there's a Vietnam veteran sitting there in a wheelchair, and, and he's crippled and. And this young man walks over and puts his hand on him and talks to him for a moment. The man gets up and takes off his lap robe and and they walk off together into the woods. And you'd say, I never saw anyone like this before. And you see, that's what Jesus was. He tabernacled among us. Sorry. And he was full of grace and truth. verse 15 is is John's witness to the incarnation he put it in the form of a puzzle John bore witness of him and cried out saying this is who uh, this is he of whom I said he who comes after me has a higher rank than I before because he existed before me now that's uh, he puts that in the form of a of a riddle something to think through because Because Jesus was actually younger than John. And normally the the older always outrank the younger. And John says, he came after me, he was born after me, but he was before me. And people listening would puzzle on that a bit and then they would come to realize what John was talking about. That this young man, who was actually uh, John's cousin, who was six months younger than he, was not the person they thought he was. He pre-existed, John. This was God in the flesh. And John goes on to say that from this one who is full of grace and truth, we have received grace upon grace. In verse 16, of his fullness, we have all received in grace upon grace. Coming to know Jesus is like Christmas. You get one gift after another. It's like the waves of the sea. Grace overwhelms you. You get one aspect of His grace and He gives you some more. And you think you don't deserve it? And you think you've disqualified yourself and He turns around and gives you more grace. That's why John says of His fullness, We, those of us who saw Him, have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, or I should say and, grace and truth were realized through Christ. The law is simply a foreshadowing of this fullness of grace which our Lord exhibited. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. The only begotten God. Now you may have a translation that says the only begotten Son, but all of the old manuscripts, the best manuscripts, Say the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, who understands the Father more uh, like no one else does, because he was with him. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained him. You may have heard the story of a little boy that was trying to struggling to draw a picture of God, and mother came by and said, What are you doing? He said, I'm drawing a picture of God. She said, No one's ever seen God. No one knows what God is like. He says, They'll know when I get through. (laughs) and in effect that's what Jesus is doing no one has seen God he he lives in unapproachable light he's invisible he cannot be seen those appearances of God in the Old Testament are just that appearances no one has ever seen God the only way to see God is, is to look at Jesus it's the only way it's the only way no one has seen God at any time the only begotten God the unique God who came from from the father's side and from his bosom, he has explicated him as the idea. He has explained him. He lets us know what God is like. Now, now a lot of us have. I don't. I had a great father. I had a very strong father, very loving father, a very godly man. So I have a very good concept of fatherhood. But some of you do not. You had terrible fathers. And so your concept of a father is all off. Look at Jesus. That's what the father is like you see that's what a father ought to be full of grace and truth insight into into life and in graciousness, tenderness love he was full of grace and truth. You know a son is really the best one to explain the heart of a father I just uh, this past summer finished reading uh, a biography of, of Jim Rayburn. Written by his son Jim Rayburn III, called "Dance, Children, Dance." It's a story of, of Jim's life and and the development, growth, and development of, of young life over the years. And there are things about the book I didn't like, but but the thing that what occurred to me as I read it is that is that Jim Rayburn III was probably best suited to reveal the heart of his father because he lived with him. He understood him in a way that nobody else understood him. And when I got through reading that book, I, I knew Jim Rayburn when I was a young man growing up. He was a good friend of my father's. And I, I there was one Jim Rayburn that I saw. There's another Jim Rayburn that I see now as a result of reading that book because the son explained the father to me. And that's what Jesus did. You know, the quest of philosophers Religious teachers is, is, is to reveal God to us. Tell us about God. That's the great question. How can you know God? What is God like? As the Pharisees said, how can we do the works of God? Well, you want to know what God is like? and just look at Jesus. That's what He's like. That's God manifest in the flesh. Philip said to Jesus one time, Lord, just show us the Father. And we'll be satisfied. Jesus said, Philip, have I been so long with you? And you don't understand? He who has seen me has seen the father. An English writer uh, has put it this way. Show us the father, is Philip's profound expression of the deep hunger behind the whole religious quest, speaking for saints and mystics, thinkers, moralists, and men of faith of every age. He that has seen me has seen the Father, is Christ's staggering reply. That is what the doctrine of Christ's deity really means and why it matters. In his words, we hear God speaking. In his deeds, we see God at work. In his reproach, we glimpse God's judgment. In his love, we feel God's heart beating. If this be not true, we know nothing of God at all. If it be true, and we know it is, then God is like Jesus, and Jesus is like God, manifest in the flesh, the unique, incomparable, only begotten Son of the everlasting God. None other lamb, none other name, none other hope in heaven or earth or sea, none other hiding place from guilt or shame, none beside thee. Let's pray. Do you long to know God, then you need to know Jesus. Will you just ask Him to come into your heart, if you've never done that before. Acknowledge Him as Lord and Savior, God of your life. Ask Him to come in and live and reign there, manifest Himself to you, and make you want what you want to be. Lord Jesus, thank you for your coming. Thank you that the word was manifest in flesh. We too have beheld your glory. The glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we thank you that we have received fullness of grace, grace upon grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.